0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman.
2: As more loggers in the northern part of New England are switching to logging with big, heavy machines,
3: What does it mean for those who are still doing the work by hand? You have to be just aware of everything in your environment. You you have to feel, you have to feel what is gonna happen. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. We're gonna
2: go into the forest for a portrait of the logging life. And we'll examine the policies that are keeping wealthy towns from adding affordable housing.
4: It can take decades for a developer to fight something in court.
2: Plus, we'll meet a commercial fisherman turned ocean farmer.
1: But every shiver of pain has been worth it. It's a meaningful life. I'm proud to spend my days helping feed my community. And if all goes well, I will die in my boat one day. And we'll hear from a group
2: that's giving historic sea shanties a new life.
0: Well, the boys and the girls went auckleberry hunting. huntin'.
1: We're
2: it's
5: next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
2: I'm John Dankowski. Thanks so much for joining us. New England's different from the rest of the U.S. in many ways, but one of the most visible is our celebration of the individuality of each town. While some states may have giant metro areas governed as large cities or strong county government overseeing municipalities inside, we largely let towns elect their own officials and run their own affairs. That includes how towns address issues of zoning and housing. An investigation by the Connecticut Mirror and ProPublica has found a pattern of towns in Connecticut blocking the construction of privately developed duplexes and apartments, and that has led to a lack of affordable housing units segregated neighborhoods, and neighborhoods with big disparities in income distribution. And it's a problem that's not just happening in Connecticut. Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas is a reporter with the Connecticut Mirror and ProPublica's local reporting network. She's the author of Separate and Unequal, How Connecticut Keeps Its Housing Segregated. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: So you use the case study of Westport, Connecticut, which is located in the southwest corner of New England, Fairfield County. It's right near New York City. Maybe you can describe the town for those who don't know about it.
4: Sure. So Westport is this small community that has about 10,000 homes, almost entirely single-family homes, and it's one of the wealthiest communities in the United States by far.
2: So you talk about mostly single-family homes. Maybe you can describe a, a bit the housing mix there Be, beyond that. I can imagine that it's it's a lot of suburban homes, but what else can you tell us about the mix of housing?
4: Sure. So the, the typical home in Westport, Westport sells for $1.2 million, which is really expensive for, you know, your moderate income individual. They have about one out of every 30 homes in that community is considered affordable, meaning that someone with limited income is able to afford to live in that community.
2: So there is some affordable housing in, in the town of Westport, but not very much. Why is there so little affordable housing available?
4: So there are several reasons that contribute to to not having a lot of affordable housing in many towns throughout Connecticut and the region. One of those being that there have been re- reasons stated such as environmental concerns, you know, we we don't want to take away open space or we don't have sidewalks in that community or we don't have the infrastructure in place. We don't have the sewers to allow. But then when you dive into the situation a little bit, you'll see Oh, the town's not allowing a sewer extension in that part of the town that the developer is willing to pay for. And, and, or they're not allowing sidewalks to move forward again, that the developer is willing to pay for. So there's sort of these reasons that are listed in some of the cases that I looked at. But then when you start to sort of dive into the discussion and what the developer is proposing, it's like, but wait a minute. They tried to meet them in the middle and say, Hey, here's a, here's a solution to that obstacle. And you'll find pretty quickly that there are, pretty big obstacles to overcome and delay it has become a tactic in some towns so in some communities even if it's not necessarily for affordable housing it's just for moderate priced housing you know market rate housing may be built within an apartment building that is cheaper than having a single-family home in a Westport for example but it still takes a while to even get approval for something like that to open here's a clip of chip Stevens who was resisting efforts and ultimately, voted to deny efforts to open a multi-unit complex in Westport that was expected to sell for $1.2 million.
1: To me, this is
2: ghettoizing Westport. What exactly is he saying there?
4: He is saying that housing density has these connotations with it, that it is something that it, it messes with the character of the community. That and that and that's something that you'll you'll sort of hear that we, we want to keep our, you know, New England feel or we want to keep our sort of the character of the community, meaning we don't want to change our sort of single family home mentality here in Westport, in that part of of the community.
2: Explain what the state law is about about towns providing affordable housing.
4: Sure. So state law says if there's not 10% of a community's housing stock dedicated for low-income residents, developers can go to court and challenge their proposal being denied, saying this town is in desperate need of more affordable housing. Their decision is not based on legitimate reasons for denying us.
2: So essentially, this allows developers to come in and say, There's clearly a need. There's a statute on the state books that says we're able to come in and challenge this and try to put this up. But what you're reporting is finding is that even with this law, even with developers wanting to come into some of the communities, it's not easy.
4: It can take decades for a developer to fight something in court.
2: So let's pull apart the, the two things. There's, there's the zoning laws in a town like Westport, and then there's the ways in which town officials interpret those laws or maybe delay along the way. Maybe you can help us understand that a little bit, because it's not just in the way that the zoning laws are written. It's also about the way that they're applied and the way that, that people perceive them.
4: State law says that you can deny affordable housing complex if there is a public safety issue in play. And so what will happen is developers will be asked to come up with traffic studies and then another traffic study or, you know, all these sort of things that cost money and time to have experts come up with, you know, different traffic studies. Okay, well, what about on – what if you do the exit on this side or do, you know, one unit unit less than what you were initially proposing? So, like, all these things that – costs money, which is, you know, when you're not opening and you're paying taxes on the land and it costs a lot of money. So what it what it's doing is it's sending a message to developers that, hey, it's going to take four or five years to break ground in Westport. You know, one developer that I spoke with, it actually took him, he's been, it's actually it still hasn't been approved. He's going on 14 years now. Here's Tim Hollister. He's that He's that attorney who, he actually fought a case in the Connecticut Supreme Court to say that these restrictive zoning practices are not permissible. And one, here's him saying that this is still going on today.
6: Does anybody say we need to keep blacks and Hispanics out of Westport? No but they talk about property values and preserving open space and all the things that a town can do to prevent development that would bring a more uh, economically and and racially diverse uh, housing population.
2: And you also looked for us at uh, how this is is faring around the region, because while Connecticut has town-by-town control, so does a lot of the rest of, of New England, and there's a lot of places in our whole region where there's a big disparity between people who can afford to live in town and people who just are priced out.
4: Right. So if you look at the economic inequality measurements that, that the U.S. Census Bureau does, you can see that in the... Boston, Providence, they're all in the top quartile for segregating low-income residents to certain communities.
2: Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas is a reporter with the Connecticut Mirror and ProPublica's local reporting network. She's written her recent piece, Separate and Unequal, How Connecticut Keeps Its Housing Segregated. You can find a link to her reporting at nextnewengland.org. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us. I
4: appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
2: Boston's Mayor Marty Walsh is planning to put at least 10% of spending toward prepping parks and infrastructure for the effects of climate change. The city's resilience initiatives are wrapped in the language of equity. In Walsh's words, representing, quote, Boston's historic commitment to our collective well-being. But some experts worry the push for climate adaptation could make inequality worse. A possible multiplier of the so-called green gentrification they say is already underway in two neighborhoods— at the center of the city's climate resilience strategy, East Boston and South Boston. WBUR's
7: Simone Rios has more. Moakley Park expands across 60 acres of the South Boston waterfront. It's a short walk from JFK Station in Dorchester, surrounded by the ocean on one side and a neighborhood that includes 2,000 units of public housing on the other. The park is prone to stormwater flooding, and it's now seen as a flood pathway that could inundate low-lying areas well beyond South Boston. Prophet Parker McWhorter teaches athletics at a local charter school that uses the Moakley Park fields.
8: It's atrocious. Uh, your, your cleats just like, I had, I had students here when we were playing soccer where their cleats came off in the mud. Uh, like, completely tied, just stuck in
7: the mud. Instead of trying to fight stormwater, the park's new design seeks to manage it. That will be done with a series of berms, structural elevations, and underground basins designed to contain floods and keep them from spilling over beyond the park. The redesign also updates athletic facilities, and with the closing of a major waterfront boulevard, seeks to transform the way Bostonians interact with the ocean. The money and timeline details of the Mokley redesign are yet to come. But at a recent community meeting, Chris Reed with the design firm Stas overseeing the project says it will be a monument to climate resilience.
9: This one's unique, though, because it has the chance to be one of the first large-scale urban parks that deliberately takes on resiliency. Um, And what's unique about Boston is, unlike New York, which suffered damage from Sandy first and then started resilience planning, Boston's been ahead of the storm.
7: City officials talk about the Moakley Park redevelopment as being fundamentally about equity. The most immediate beneficiaries are the people who live in the public housing developments surrounding the park. But some climate advocates say there are signs that the push toward resilience could make life harder for poor residents of the city. Researchers at the Autonomous University of Barcelona say so-called green gentrification is already underway in Boston. With previously unpublished data shared with WBUR, the researchers show a correlation between new green spaces and neighborhoods becoming wealthier, whiter and more educated. On the East Boston waterfront, an endless flow of cranes and dump trucks paves the way for luxury housing. Some of the properties are being built to weather not only the storms of today, but the hurricanes expected by the end of the century. But some East Boston residents question who the push for climate resilience is for. People who already live there are those who have yet to come.
3: What happens behind Clippership Wharf and Port Sariris Pier? The water comes in, they're good, right, so, to some extent. What happens to the older housing stock and
10: developments behind that?
7: Away from the construction, near her home and the public housing behind all the development, is activist Magdalena Ayed. She heads a nonprofit called The Harbor Keepers, whose members keep watch over the city's resiliency efforts in East Boston.
10: We have
3: elderly populations, people that are immobile. You have people with language barriers, people who are extremely low fixed incomes. They don't have the resources to bounce back.
7: Most of the new housing in East Boston is unlikely to be affordable to the typical family in the neighborhood, where the median household income is $52,000. For Latino families, it's $43,000 and for black families just 24,000. And according to the real estate firm Zillow, the typical rent in the neighborhood is $2600 a month, about the price of a studio at one of the new waterfront developments. Ayeth says that's out of reach for her and most of her neighbors. The city estimates that in 50 years, nearly half of East Boston could see flooding during a major storm. That's why two years ago, the city launched Climate Ready East Boston, the first neighbourhood in the citywide initiative. A consultant studied vulnerabilities and drew up a resiliency plan, which so far has resulted in a deployable flood barrier, according to city data. But Boston's resilience work is only beginning, and Ayev sees a way to right the ship – She says a coming adaptation boom could be the chance to make Boston a more equal city, but only, she says, if it's done right.
5: You Remember
3: the Etch-A-Sketch, right? You could just erase it all and start all over. This is the opportunity of the century. Why don't we use this opportunity of building resiliency to kind of level the playing field, and that's what we're trying to do.
7: But how does one gauge whether that's being achieved? Atia Martin, Boston's first and former chief resilience officer, says there's a framework for measuring equity in city planning. Whether or not
5: communities feel that they were actually included in the process and they're actually benefiting, right? That's the ultimate metric. But if people fundamentally... Don't feel like their voice was heard, don't feel like they benefited financially. Did we actually um, build resilience in the community? Martin says the first
7: test is whether the city engages neighbors in deciding how to spend money in their neighborhoods.
5: The second test is outcomes. Who built up their wealth off of the investments made? And so if the communities who are usually left out are still left out, that's an equity failure.
7: Across the street from Moakley Park, a woman rolls a grocery cart past the Mary Ellen McCormick housing development. It's the place where Richard Elwood has lived for the last decade. After 70 years in the city, he's skeptical of whether the Moakley redesign will ultimately benefit people like him. Look what they did to South Boston, South Condos. So, 20 years from now, do you think that, this, that you'll still have a place in a place like this? Me? I doubt it. I seriously doubt it
6: unless they go back to rent control to uh, accommodate people that can't afford it.
7: Another Southie resident who takes issue with aspects of the Mowgli redesign is Kamari Parker. He grew up playing basketball on the courts right next to the McCormick projects. And under the plan, those courts will be moved across the park, closer to the water, to a part of the neighborhood where he says he doesn't see many black people, like him. It removes a, a whole bunch of memories that was very sacred to people and that, that were very, like, important to people, like,
8: for me specifically. My name is Chris Cook, and I'm the chief of environment, energy, and open space for the city of
7: Boston. So if somebody has a bone to pick about Climate Ready Boston, the buck stops with you? 100%. Cook says he's aware of the danger that new parks and public gardens could make it harder for existing residents to afford to stay in their neighborhoods. He says the city will continue to try to reach residents they haven't yet and that the Moakley plan is still subject to change. Cook says the city's push to build more affordable housing will help ensure that displacement doesn't happen under his watch. You
11: can't lose sight of the
2: people who are going to be affected and how they're going to be affected.
7: How will you quantify equitability five, ten years from now? Moakley is surrounded by really diverse, vibrant uh, neighborhoods, Are those neighborhoods
8: as diverse and as vibrant five, ten years ago after this plan is implemented?
7: That would be success. Mayor Marty Walsh says the resilience push is coming at the same time as historic city investments in affordable housing. But some resilience experts say the city has to go deeper and couple climate resilience directly with policies to stop people from getting pushed out. If not, the parks of the future may be of little benefit to the residents of today. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Simone Rios. Join us for a next
2: event at the International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven, Connecticut. On Tuesday, June 18th, we'll be talking to experts about our region's old industrial buildings, how these spaces can help move us toward the future. For more information, visit our Facebook page for Next to New England. We hope to see you there. Coming up, we'll hear the stories of loggers in Vermont. But first, the future of fishing. Does it look more like farming? Find out. Next
5: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York.
1: I'm a restorative ocean farmer. It's a trade both old and new, a job rooted in thousands of years of history, dating back to Roman times. I used to be a commercial fisherman chasing your dinner on the high seas for a living. But now I farm 20 acres of saltwater, growing a mix of sea greens and shellfish. I've paid my debt to the sea. I dropped out of high school to fish and spent too many nights in jail. My body is beat to hell. I crawl out of bed like a lobster most mornings. I've lost vision in half my right eye from a chemical spill in Alaska. I'm an epileptic who can't swim, and I'm allergic to shellfish but every shiver of pain has been worth it. It's a meaningful life. I'm proud to spend my days helping feed my community, and if all goes well, I will die in my boat one day, maybe get a small obit in the town paper, letting friends know that I was taken by the ocean, that I died a proud farmer growing food underwater, that I wasn't a tree hugger, but spent my days listening to and learning from the waves and weather, that I believed in building a world where we can all make a living on a living planet. That's Bren Smith, reading from his new book, Eat Like a Fish, My
2: Adventures as a Fisherman Turned Restorative Ocean Farmer. Bren began his career as a commercial fisherman, but now is the owner of Thimble Island Oyster Company, a 3D restorative ocean farm in Connecticut. So what exactly is a 3D restorative ocean farm? Well, Smith says it might just be the future of working on the sea. He says it is a lot different than the life he
1: used to live. You know, when I shifted from a commercial fisherman on the Bering Sea in Alaska to a salmon fisherman and then a shell fisherman. And the shift from fishing to farming was actually kind of unsettling and boring. You know, for me as a fisherman, I I, I always chased fish, you know, further and further out to sea. And it was it was an adventurous life. And farming is much more sort of meditative, careful, slower. So that was a challenge. That said – the similarity is there's still sort of jobs you can sing songs about, right? Hmm. they are jobs with meaning, the pride of helping feed the country, you, you own your own boat, no boss, a self-directed life. So although I don't chase and kill things anymore, I still have that part.
2: The life of the fisherman, is, as you say, is it's hard, it's dangerous, and you're you're chasing this living thing. How did your relationship with that work change as you grew older and you learned more about the work that you were doing?
1: Yeah. You know, I showed up especially in the Bering Sea. I just loved it, right? The, the wild humility of being in, you know, 40-foot seas, the, the hours I love, 30-hour shifts with 13 other people in the belly of a boat. But as I, uh, you know, I eventually went back to college for a while and then kept on going back to Alaska and just learned the context that I was working in which was you know i was working in the height of an industrialized fishery tearing up whole ecosystems and most of the fish i was catching was going to mcdonald's for the fish sandwich so you know when i when i faced that context i realized i love my job as an incredible job but it was it was extractive and there needed to be some changes but you know it wasn't this i wasn't an environmentalist it was really a question a realization that oh for me to make a living on the ocean we we had to become stewards of the ocean. Could,
2: could you talk more about that? You say you weren't an environmentalist. What what does that mean? Why is it an important thing for you to say?
1: I mean, and this is exp- extremely relevant, I think, for climate change. So it's it's been framed by environmentalists forever about sort of bears and bees and birds and really about protecting the natural uh, world. But most of us who work, we experience it as a kitchen table issue. Right, there are going to be no jobs on a dead planet. When the cod stocks crashed in Newfoundland, back where I was from, thirty thousand people thrown out of work overnight, the biggest layoff in Canadian history. And it was amazing to watch a culture and an economy built up literally over a hundred years just disappear over overnight. And that's when I – you know, this idea that we need to make a living on a living planet, that goal uh had to motivate all of us from all different sort of aspects, whether we're, you know, foodies who love uh, seaweeds and oysters, whether environmentalists that really care about the birds or the bees or those of us that, you know, work in the water.
2: Mm. So so you moved from, from ocean fishing into aquaculture, and your early experiences in aquaculture are a bit different than what your experiences are today. I, explain to people who don't know what
1: aquaculture exactly is, because there's a lot of tears mm-hmm. to this idea. So aquaculture is really farming the ocean. Um, and traditionally, it's always been about farming fish, right? And the reason is, you know, we fish and we wipe out the fish, and then we decide, okay, we're going to grow what we've wiped out because that's what the markets demand. That's what tastes demand. So it's traditionally been about growing, you know, salmon, tunas, things like that.
2: That's what people like to eat.
1: Yeah, exactly what i found when i arrived on the salmon farms because that was supposed to be the great hope right in in jobs for uh fishermen we're going to feed the planet all this sort of stuff instead it did exactly what land-based industrial farming did but in the sea right monoculture using antibiotics pesticides polluting local waterways i mean really growing neither fish nor food iowa pig farms at sea so instead of looking at the ocean as this unique agricultural space and asking the ocean, okay, what do you want us to grow? Um, We just grew around existing wild tastes and I think that was a mistake. So after I left the salmon farms, I didn't know what I'd end up doing, but that was a journey of really asking the ocean, okay, what makes sense?
2: And as you ask the the ocean that question, going from there, what what was the ocean telling you? What, What were you learning about what the ocean wants humans to grow?
1: You know, I ended up here in Long Island Sound it's sort of this full circle of my my family. I, I, I never expected it. Um, lived in an Airstream trailer in Guilford. It was supposed to be uh, about six months. It ended up being uh, seven years, which uh, the first six months were great, by the way. <laughs> I And so I I started with oysters, and I was a terrible farmer. I ran a death camp, right, killing millions of oysters because just because I didn't know how to farm. But what oysters taught me was that if you grow things that – don't want to swim away and you don't have to feed, it's a game changer. Mm. So because we have all these species that can grow just with nutrients that are in the water that we have too much of, too much nitrogen, too much carbon, too much phosphorus, and grow with sunlight, it becomes really a simple, elegant, and quite honestly, cheap way to grow food.
2: When you talk about something like oysters, the the market for oysters has changed even over our lifetimes they used to be something that people ate as food and then it became a bit of a delicacy and then they were off menus as people ate whatever salmon was coming from the grocery store and now there's a boom in things like oysters i mean in in some part brand the idea that you could farm oysters right now in long island sound or or up in maine Comes from the fact that people really now do want to eat them and pay some money for them.
1: What's amazing in American culture is that food has become central. I mean, you know, I grew up in the '80s uh, on the fish stick and the the, the fish sandwich out of McDonald's, which I, you know, I love those both. <laughs> yeah, I get my lonely moments and I'll go to a parking lot and gobble a couple fish sandwiches out <laughs> of McDonald's. But food has become a central sort of discussion point, community anchor. And it's just amazing to see. And oysters were one of these agents of sustainability that we could eat and actually change – rearrange the plate to create a sort of environmental cuisine or what I think of as a as a climate cuisine. Now, I think one of the key things from a farming perspective is to always move beyond monoculture. Mother Nature abhors monoculture, right? She introduces disease and all sorts of things. So the great thing about the ocean is we can do polyculture. There are 10,000 plants in the ocean, hundreds of kinds of shellfish. So the question for me was, OK, let's take 20 acres and figure out all the different things we can grow in those 20 acres that are you know, indigenous to Long Island sound. So, so what does that look like? Maybe you can describe
2: for our listeners what 20 acres of a polyculture in the ocean looks like. What's in there?
1: Yeah. So we call it restorative ocean farming. And imagine an underwater garden where you've got anchors down the bottom and then just buoys up to the surface and and then horizontal lines about eight feet below the surface. And from there, we grow our kelp vertically downwards. We attach mussels in something we call mussel socks, scallops and lantern nets. And in my farm, I've got oyster cages on, sitting on the sea floor, and then clams down uh, in the mud. And this sea basket approach of growing year-round different species it diversifies risk for the farmer... But the interesting thing is because it's all underwater and all it is is just rope scaffolding that's really cheap. You just need like twenty thirty grand to to start and and get up and uh get up and going, but it also has a really low aesthetic impact so you can boat fish, swim over the farm, some of the best fishing the whole area I'm in mean, the thimble islands is right on my Right on my site and it has a low aesthetic impact. And this is really important, right? Our oceans are these beautiful, pristine places. And instead of massive fish pens, uh, we can have these aesthetically low impact farms. Is this something that can be done at a greater scale than what you're
2: doing yourself? And if you begin to take it to a larger scale, is there a worry that we get back into the large scale kind of factory farming that you talk about? either in the aquaculture you used to work in or in pig farms in the Midwest? That's
1: exactly the core question, and it kind of keeps me up at night because we've had huge amount of success. What I did was I founded Greenway, which is a, a nonprofit based right in New Haven, and we're training the next generation of ocean farmers. And we're working in Alaska, California, Pacific Northwest, New York. We just put our first farms in and, of course, um, throughout southern uh, New England, and we have requests to start farms in every coastal state in North America, twenty countries around the world there 's like a tsunami of of interest and so one of the questions we 've had at Greenwave is what does scale look like because in the era of climate change, every solution we come up with we have to ask is it scalable right? we 've got thirty years to address the food crisis, the climate crisis, things like that so according to the World Bank, if you were to take less than five percent of u s waters, you could grow the equivalent protein of three trillion cheeseburgers and soak up 120 million tons of carbon, right? So we can really scale this, but does that look like 1,000-acre farms out at sea or these sort of banana plantations? And for us, it's no. What it looks like is a green wave reef where we have networks of 50 farms, all 20 to you know 30 acres or so, a seafood hub and a hatchery in a disadvantaged neighborhood like Fairhaven, a neighborhood in Connecticut and then a ring of entrepreneurs. And then you replicate that reef up and down the coast. So you scale through networked production. There's a huge community benefit because these are lots of small businesses rather than one vertical. I've got a section on the principles of uh, restorative ocean agriculture in the book where I'm trying to lay out, okay, what does a new economy look like? Because listen, the ocean is a blank slate. And that's exciting because we can take all these lessons from industrial aquaculture, all these lessons from agriculture and move out in the ocean and sort of do food right, build something from the bottom up that makes sure that beginning farmers have access to land and make sure that social justice is woven into the DNA of this economy to make sure that the benefits don't go to the top but go to – benefit everybody in the community.
2: Brent Smith is the owner of Thimble Island Oyster Company. It's an ocean farm in Connecticut. He's the author of a new book called Eat Like a Fish, My Adventures as a Fisherman Turned Restorative Ocean Farmer. Brent, thanks so much for joining us. I thanks it. so much. Total honor. We were struck by this line from Brent's book about fishermen. There are no songs about hedge fund managers or lawyers. There are hundreds about us. Now, those songs come in many styles, including The Sea Shanty, once the soundtrack of the Golden Age of Sail. The shanty has gone the way of other traditional work songs relegated to folk festivals, history museums, and a few tourist schooners. But in mid-coast Maine, shanties that have sat in the archives for nearly 100 years are getting a new life and being put back to work on Penobscot Bay. From Maine Public Radio, Ari Snyder has more.
0: The chorus goes like this. Whee! Try
10: it.
9: At a private home in Northport, Bennett Kinesny is teaching a sea shanty to a group of about 10 singers.
0: Well, the boys and the girls, when a huckleberry huntin' we,
9: well, the boys and girls... Kinesny is a musician and farmer from Belfast, and the founder of the Work Song Community Chorus. Its mission, he says, is to bring work songs of all kinds out of the archives and back into use on the farm, on the water, or by the woodpile. In recent years, Kinesny has focused on reviving maritime work songs, better known as sea shanties, or simply shanties.
0: Well, at the root of sea shanties is the call-and-response format. It might be a direct call-and-response, where they just sing exactly what the shanty man sang, or it could be something slightly different. Tell me what would you give for your fine leg of mutton? Oh. Hey, 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 hey. Hey. Hey.
9: Finally... Kinesny was introduced to shanties as a teenager while working on schooners. This is where he learned that specific shanties match the rhythm of different tasks. For example, he says he discovered that raising the anchor with a hand-cranked machine called a windlass creates a slow and steady beat that gave a structure to the song.
0: And you create a rhythm is like chung, chung, chung. So we might sing a song like, oh, Cape Cod girls don't use no combs. Heave away, haul away. They comb their hair with the codfish
9: bones and were bound away for Australia. Traditionally, these songs were led by a shanty man, usually a member of the crew, and they'd only be sung while working.
8: They felt it was wrong and even bad
2: luck to sing a shanty when you weren't working.
9: Stephen Sanfilippo of Pembroke and his wife, Susan, are part of a small but passionate community of sea music experts. He says shanties helped sailors do their work, but also gave them cover to openly complain about, and even to make fun of, the ship's captain and officers. It's subversive.
2: They sing out at their work, and they very often, in a shanty, in a way that they couldn't in speech, are highly critical.
9: One not-so-subtle example of this subversion can be found in the song called from New York Harbor, where one verse jokes about throwing the captain overboard as shark food. The shanty tradition had its heyday during the mid to late 1800s, when global trade relied on huge wooden sailing ships, many of which were built in Maine. Sipperly Good, a curator at the Penobscot Marine Museum in Searsport, says Maine also supplied a lot of the manpower to sail those ships.
10: I like to think of... Of the main
0: captains and crews they were like the tractor trailer drivers of today
9: this period before the advent of steamships is known as the golden age of sail
0: it's that romantic version of sailing around cape horn um, sailing to china those of us alive today who wish we were back then <laughs> it's the golden age
9: one searsport resident who did live through the golden age of sail was joanna kolkard kolkard was actually born at sea in 1882 on her father's ship during a voyage from New York to Japan. She spent the first 18 years of her life at sea and went on to found the Penobscot Marine Museum with her brother.
0: Joanna helped capture what life was like at sea, and she was able to write it down in books and articles. She captured the sea shanties.
9: Today, Colkert's shanty book is an important source of primary material for Bennett Kinesny's work song chorus. It's really
0: neat to think of sort of connecting the community through sound, connecting people who live on the shore back to the ocean through that sound and back through time
9: through those songs. This summer, the chorus will put the songs back to work in a 38 foot wooden rowboat on Penobscot Bay. For the shanties once heard from Searsport to Singapore, it's a small but vocal comeback. (laughs) For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ari Snyder in Belfast, Maine.
2: Coming up, the Vermont loggers who still do their work by hand. It's next.
5: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust.
2: One of the big changes in the culture and economy of the Northern Forest has been the transition from small-scale logging to mechanized logging using big, heavy machinery. Audio producer Erica Heilman went in search of the loggers who are still doing it the old-fashioned way, cutting down trees with chainsaws, attaching the logs to cables, and dragging them out using what's called a skitter. In her journey through the woods of northeastern Vermont and adjoining New Hampshire, Erica discovered what makes these loggers different and learns about the intimate relationship between a forested region and the people who work there. Here's the story.
6: I've lost friends, yes. Yeah. Lost... uh... Danny Champagne he got killed, killed in the woods pinned I believe he was young too bad
10: why do you do this job
6: I guess I'm doing it because it's what I know how to do basically yep yeah.
10: that's David Ranclose he's a logger in Colebrook New Hampshire up near Vermont's northeast kingdom and his primary tools are a truck a chainsaw and a cable skitter. Mostly he works in the woods alone. Up until about 30 years ago, logging up in what was called the Champion Lands in the Northeast Kingdom was done with a chainsaw and skidder. Teams of loggers cutting by hand, pulling trees out of the woods with cables. Then in the early 80s, mechanized came in, feller bunchers and grapplers, equipment that's much bigger, much safer, and 10 times faster than men with chainsaws. It's also a lot more comfortable. You can listen to the radio, you can turn up the heat. Now almost all of that industrial land in the Great Northern Forest is logged this way, and a lot of cable skidding loggers up in that area have changed over to mechanized. But if you drive around in the kingdom, well, pretty much anywhere in rural Vermont and New Hampshire, you'll still see skidders parked in people's dooryards. You'll still see pickup trucks parked along the side of the road at turnoffs leading into the woods. You see these loggers working in smaller woodlots and residential woodlots, felling trees with chainsaws at 20 below, dragging cables through waist-deep snow. It's dangerous work, and they're a resilient lot, and they prefer logging by hand. The story is about them. Welcome.
3: I grew up on a dairy farm, and we cut wood whenever we weren't doing something with the cattle. So from like five, six years old, I started uh, logging with my father, you know, just watching at first. By eight years old, he was teaching me to use hand tools, pulp hooks, cant dogs. By probably 12 or 13, I was running a chainsaw. And at the end of my high school, the uh, government bought the dairy farms in this area out. There was too much milk on the market, so they bought the dairy farms out. So we went to logging full-time, and him and I logged full-time until he passed away three, two years ago.
8: Some people, when they're growing up, they have, like, their heroes, you know, they want to be a fireman or they want to, like, my hero was, like, the lumberjack, you know, like, reading books and, like, they're standing next to these huge trees, you know, with their their pants, they're, like, chopped off and they were in the spike boots. I don't know, like, I was just so attracted to that, being that person. Yeah.
11: I don't care if I have to dig a hole in the ground eight feet deep or if you put me up in the air 40 feet uh, painting at the end of the day, as long as I get a paycheck. But I want to be outside. I don't want to be inside. So do not mind a hard day's work.
3: It makes the beer taste better at the end of the day. My father was... He was the one that showed me how to do every single thing I, I learned. And probably the proudest day I had in the woods was one day I cut a tree that was... A, every tree is different, and it takes... A lot of years of knowledge to know what a tree is going to do you know, when you cut it. And I cut that tree and I made it do something that was very skillful. It was a, quite an art to make it do what I wanted it to do. When it hit the ground, we stopped and he told me, you're better than I am. And that was a big day for me.
11: Well, I'll tell you, if you don't have self-motivation, then you're never going to make it in the logging industry. So, you know, when you look at the thermometer and it says 30 below, pour yourself an extra thermos of coffee, leave an hour or two earlier, because the skitter probably isn't going to start, which means... Well, when
3: you see, uh, like, like, old, old sap buckets grown into the tree, you say someone was here, you know, 100 years ago, and you, you, you respect it. You respect the woods that you're working in. I I love the woods and I love the trees. And, but I also love cutting the trees. So then you get your chainsaw, you gotta have a chainsaw. For instance, on a rainy day. And when you crank and you crank, crank
11: and crank control. and the thing won't start because it's froze, so what do you do? You you stand up on the skidder tyre, you stick it up on the roof where the exhaust pipe comes out and you let the exhaust blow on it. Um so it for a forester five, comes
3: minutes. in and marks all well, the trees that they want the cut. Running. A lot of foresters use blue because a lot of 40-year-old men can't see red very good. But it's the sounds of trees crashing and then dead silence. The sound of a trucker coming in to get your wood and leaving with it. it's it's, It's almost what you live for. Well,
11: finally, you get the saw running. And by that time, your fingers are so cold. You can't feel your fingers. So then you have to stick them on the exhaust pipe. And you still ain't got to
3: hitch your wood on the yard, and you, but it's, it's in your blood. And there is a moment when the tree starts to fall. If you're in a forest, a thick forest, all the limbs are touching another limb that they weren't a second ago. When the tree hits the ground, there's what's called throwback. The energy from the tree hitting the ground will throw sometimes large limbs back at you so the moment that this all happens you have to be just aware of everything in your environment you you have to feel you have to feel what is going to happen
6: the big thing is not to get too comfortable doing it you know because i found myself if i'm in a hurry i'll stop looking up you know i've got trees falling and no idea what it you know so i catch myself back up Pay attention to what you're doing again you can get rushing and, and get ahead of yourself and that's something you shouldn't do because that's usually when something goes wrong but i don't know I've, I've been lucky this far
11: i was cutting this balsam fur so i made my notch and i'm making my back cut and usually i don't look back up usually i'm paying attention to my hinge and, and my back cut making sure i don't overcut. And something on this particular tree told me to look back up. And I look back up the tree, and here come this porcupine. And he's probably five feet from my head, and he's barreling out of that tree. All I remember is I threw that chainsaw, and I just dove into the brush. And if I hadn't looked back up, he would have landed on the back of my neck. And uh, that was a scary moment. He went his way,
6: and I went back, got my saw, and went back to work. So, <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, I had one guy who was hurt pretty bad. Blood all over everything. Stringy dried up blood. It was like a deep cut blood. Instead of going to the doctor, he went home first because he just bought a new pair of boots, and he weren't going to let him cut him off. He made his wife take them off because they ruined his last pair of boots when he got cut. Of course, they pretty much lost him in Cobra because he of blood to death. It just goes to show you. <laughs> he didn't want his new boots cut off.
11: We always seem to be picked on the logger. Because you could do 99 good jobs and nobody knows you. But you do that one bad job, everybody knows you. Them loggers, you know, oh, look at the mess they left over here. Look at, you know, look at that
8: hillside gone. I often look at a stand that's been logged, say, 15, 20 years ago, and I'll judge the logger. I'll be like, oh, this logger didn't do a great job, mainly because like residual stand damage, like trees are marked up. A good logger doesn't mark up trees, they clean up the job well with water bars. And that's my standard because that's my reputation. And there's plenty of good loggers out there that really are passionate about the woods. You know they want to be stewards of the land.
6: We made more money years ago because now we're trying to compete with mechanized, so that's making it very hard for somebody by hand. Anyways, I mean you, you, you got mechanized can come in cut ungodly amounts of wood where by hand they can't. You're pretty much set. It's so all volumes though. The more, the better.
3: I I really don't see a, a future of. Of hand work in the woods. The people won't do it. And now that a lot of us are getting older, we can't do it. But a small landowner can't have these big operations come into their property. They just don't have the room. It's, they need a certain amount of money to be able to move all of their equipment onto your property and do this work. Whereas I can move in a very small time. If you can't afford to keep your land open, you're going to have to sell it. It's So the whole area is going to change because of losing a certain type of person. My neighbor needed a roof for his house. He asked me, can you come up and cut enough so I can put a roof on my house as well? I went and cut enough so that he could pay for a roof. He can't go to the huge contractor down there and say, can you come cut me $900 worth of wood? You know, just impossible. That can't happen. So the small person like me is a service that people need.
11: Between logging and famine, what, what would we have? There is nothing. Logan is the heart and soul of the North Country.
8: There's like one thing I could tell people is how passionate some people can be about the woods. I mean, I always walk old jobs. I usually carry a shovel with me so I can kick out water bars that get Most of the time it's from the landowner or somebody else driving a four-wheeler on them or something else, and they never fix the water bar, so I have to go back through. Um, just, that's just for me, um, like a peace of mind. And I almost judge myself, again, you know, as if, as if I'm judging somebody else that logged it. I think it becomes almost like <laughs> almost like a child. You know, I'm in a job for two months, and I'm there every day, um, and I care for it, you know, and I really care about the work. That's why I carry my shovel with me, to make sure I'm maintaining it still.
2: That story was produced by Erica Heilman. She talked to loggers David Ranclose, Tony Hibbert, Jim Welch, Michael Belknap, and Dana Field. Music was by Vermont musician Brian Clark, and the podcast is part of the Resilient Force series, Produced by Northern Woodlands and is supported by the Davis Conservation Foundation and the Larson Fund. Most of the loggers you heard are part of the landscape of the vast working forest of Vermont's Northeast Kingdom, the subject of a special report in the summer 2019 issue of Northern Woodlands magazine. You can find that reporting and more about the nonprofit at northernwoodlands.org. If you're looking for our podcast, you can find it wherever you get podcasts. Just search for Next New England. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. The program is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, The Wolf Sisters, and Emma June. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Publics Radio.